Let's do this affirmation together. Let everything I do, do, Lord, reflect my attunement with Thee. Let everything I do, Lord, reflect my attunement with Thee. Let everything I do, Lord, reflect my attunement with Thee. Oh, peace. Amen. Um, Today we're dealing with Lesson 13, Keep Your Feet on the Ground. And Swamiji starts out right with where we left off the last time uh, when I was talking about Lesson 12. Uh, Be practical in your idealism was the theme that I talked about. And I was talking about in that lesson um, a great deal about... um, the context in which Master said that to Swamiji, which was at a time when he misunderstood something. And in that lesson, as I have explained in a little preamble to that lesson, I went at great length telling the wrong story for Master's comment. Everything else that I said was true, and all the conclusions that I drew were true, it's just that I had the context wrong. Above all, I like to be truthful, but also I rely a great deal on my accurate understanding of these things. He could have said it for the story I told. It just happened that he didn't. And in fact, the context in which Master actually said it to Swamiji was much more profound and much more interesting. And that's what Swamiji talks about today. So I think before I go into the rest of what this lesson is about, I would just sort of like to reflect on it because it's fascinatingly interesting. As I said at great length last week, um, the reason Master said that to Swami in that particular context was because it's very easy for us to get completely involved in our own ideas about things and become much more engaged in our own ideas about things than in how those ideas actually relate to the world around us. Um, I was uh, having to try to help a woman friend this last week who was facing an extremely difficult situation with her teenage son. Um, Teenagers can be very challenging, and she has a maximum challenge on her situation. And, of course, you can't rely on teenagers to be reasonable if they've set their minds not to be. And her um, natural parental anxiety about the the, uh, negative behaviors that he was engaged in made her want to do everything she could to make him be different. So it was a very um, difficult conversation in the sense of the implications of it were very painful for her, which is you simply can't make people do something. You can be perfectly right in your idealistic understanding of what they ought to do, but you also have to relate to the reality of the situation. And the reality of a situation is that when a boy is 17, 18, and 19 years old, you just can't pick him up anymore and make him do what you want. And I remember my sister raising her son, the point at which she really realized that she'd crossed over from the stage where if he really became impossible, she could simply grab him out of the, around the waist and drag him somewhere, you know, and then put him somewhere where she wanted him to be. I mean, she never abused him or spanked him even in that sense, but still she was bigger than he was and could always simply overpower him and move him. And then, of course, they get really big. And they often get bigger than their mothers and often get bigger than their fathers. And you don't have any such options anymore. You have to actually reach them. And if they're not reachable, um, you don't have a lot of other weapons left. I mean, at that point, weapons is perhaps not the right word. But you have to be practical. So she was giving me all these ideas of things she wanted to say. And there were the right things to say, and there were perfectly appropriate things to say, but I kept asking her back, will he listen? You know, is he going to pay any attention? How quickly is he going to tune you out? You know, and she admitted probably after word two would be the point at which he would stop listening to her. Well, we have to be practical in our idealism. You know, I don't mean that there are no solutions, because that's part of what this lesson is about, is that the reality of being solution-conscious But solutions will come when we are practically engaged in what's really going on and not trying to mold facts to our desires. So to come back to what I was starting to say about the context in which this happened, 
um, as you know, as most of you know, Swami Kriyananda had this very um, uh, decisive and dramatic event in his life when he was expelled from Self-Realization Fellowship when he was 36 years old. And, the, and the, his principal nemesis in that was a woman who was named Lori Pratt, who later became known as Taramata, and she was a longtime disciple of Masters, senior to Swamiji in the work, so to speak, and Diamata's um, uh, partnership with Tara and really turned against him. But it was Tara's um, intense antagonism toward him that really caused him these difficulties. Swami always had a great deal of respect for Tara and a great deal of tolerance for her eccentricity. But the um, clash between them, Swami also knew, was inevitable because, as he put it, they represented polar opposite points of view in terms of how Master's work should be spread. So Swami tells us this incident in the very beginning of this lesson in which Master had just finished editing his Bhagavad Gita commentary, and that was for Swamiji, an extremely um, integral part of his training as a disciple, because when Master went to the desert retreat um, to work on that editing, he took uh, Kriyananda with him. And the way Master tells the story is, I asked Divine Mother who should come with me, and your face popped up. And then Master said, just to be sure, I asked her two more times, and every time your face came up. So even though Swami was just literally only months in in SRF, Master took him with him, and then it was during the time of that editing that Swamiji really was able to make this very deep bond with Yogananda, being out there at the retreat. Also, it was a time of great testing for Swamiji in which he had to face great inner doubts and inner struggles. So it was all a very important time. And at the end of that, after Master had finished writing, he talked. Master talked excitedly about how we're going to get this book out by Christmas 1950. And Taramata, Lori Pratt at that time, was working on the editing. And um, Swamiji was naively interested. And, you know, he didn't really know anything about what was going on. And he just mentioned it. Swami just casually mentioned it in a very sort of happy way. Oh, isn't this wonderful? We're getting this book out by Christmas, he says to Lori Pratt when he's meeting her away from Master. She says, I couldn't possibly get it out by that time. So Swamiji is a young disciple, so he runs back and he tells the guru, oh, you know, Lori doesn't seem to think that she can get it out by then. Master expresses great exasperation, always delays, always delays, he says. And so he says, I'll write her a letter. So naively, Swamiji just assumes that he's going to put into writing um, what he just tattled about. You know, Walter tells me that you said you can't get this book out. I want this book out. I mean, he doesn't know Master well enough to know what's going to happen. So he is the messenger. Master gives him the letter to deliver to Lori Pratt. And he delivers the letter, and as he hands it to her, he's uh, apologetic. I'm sorry, this is my fault, he says. Now, of course, in an ashram, it's very difficult because everybody's so intuitive. People can read each other left and right. Even with less help than that, she could have figured it out. So she reads the letter. Master says, nothing, nothing scolding, nothing at all. He just is encouraging her because he understands her nature. He realizes that to scold her is not going to help. You know, if, if he thought it would get the book out faster to be stern with her, he would have been stern with her. But he's practical in his idealism. He knows what's really going to reach her. But Lori figures out, you know, what had happened, that, ma- that, that Kriyananda must have taken the message back and all of this. And then there's a bit of a misunderstanding between Master and Tara over the whole thing. And Swami's sort of the cause of it. Now, no hint was there that, you know, Swami would, you, would become such a prominent person in the work that Tara, after Master dies, 14 after, years afterwards, there would be all this fight between them. But Master is very, very concerned. And Swamiji, interestingly, and this is the part that's so fascinating, Swamiji realizes, of course, that Master knew what was coming. Master knew this great conflict that would arise in the middle of his work and how these two of his disciples would have this schism between them. And so he saw it right there. And so his concern over it all was uh, out of proportion until you realize what was coming. And there's many aspects of this that are so sweet. Part of it is... It took Swamiji many years to really understand 
how much Master anticipated what was going to happen to him. Because when Swamiji was expelled from SRF, there was such a, it, was, it felt like so, such a trauma to him. And, and of course, he naturally wondered, have I displeased Master in some way? That, his, that my guru bhais, his disciples, would turn on me. So Swamiji's ability to look back and see all the different times, the few times there were, but the, the ways in which Master seemed to anticipate this happening, of course, makes, made him feel in his heart that he hadn't been abandoned by Master. The Master knew all along it was going to happen. Much more dramatically, of course, is in the story in the life of Christ when he warns Peter that Peter's going to deny their relationship you know, that very night, three times. And Peter swears he's not going to, but of course he does. And one of the things that must have made it possible for him to get through that was the realization that Jesus knew. So it was in that context that Master said to Swamiji, that context, not the one I said last week, that Master said to me, you've got to be more practical in your idealism. Meaning, oh, well, Master wants this out, so I'll just tell her that Master wants it out and then it's all going to happen. You have to also realize that in this world we're working with many subtle energies and things just don't happen so simply. It's very interesting, I've often watched people coming into Ananda Ashram here and them just having a sort of starry-eyed idea about how everything's going to work and and being a little startled to realize that it's still, well, I was started to use the phrase, which is the other phrase in this whole lesson, it's still feet on the ground. It's still that we're not floating in the astral world, we're still dealing with human nature, we're still, still dealing with our own nature and with the nature of everyone else around us. And even though people's aspirations and their hearts may be just as pure as they can be um, in their intentions, nonetheless, it's a very, very complicated system that we're working with. And many, many people can just declare how things ought to be. And I remember vividly... Um, when I was working for Swamiji as his secretary, we were having some difficulty at that time with the management of the guest facility. And uh, someone wrote Swamiji a letter, and I had opened the letter because it wasn't marked personal, so I, was, you know, I, I um, looked at his correspondence before I gave it to him. And it was a very thoughtful letter with analyzing what the situation was at the retreat and um, you know, why we were having so much difficulties. I thought it was a really good letter. And I handed it to Swami, and so this, you'll be interested, this is a very good letter. And he read it through, and it was an analysis of the difficulties. Swami picked up the letter, and he crumpled it, and he just threw it on the floor. He said, anybody can tell me what the problems are. He said, I want someone who says, I will solve it. Which was a really big, uh, you know, understanding for me. I remember years later, in the way that things repeat, we were having a lot of trouble at that time. This was many years ago with, with personnel, none of whom are still with us, just so that nobody looks around at any of our the great souls in the room because I'm going to talk about recording. <laughs> but we were having some just really annoying problems from my point of view with the recording. And it was, it was not machine failure. It was primarily human error. And I was just... I was less patient with it than I should have been, and I expressed extreme frustration over some really critical thing that had been ridiculously mishandled. And the individual started saying, well, you know, we have lots of volunteers, and it's kind of hard to train them, and they don't always come. When, and, I, and I just said, that is the project. You know, don't, don't describe to me the project as somehow that's the explanation why it's not working. The project is that we have lots of volunteers and we have to make sure that we keep the energy and the magnetism up. That, that's not an ex- excuse. That's a, just a fact. Now, that's sort of what Master's trying to say to hi- us here. Yes, ideally, everybody just comes in and does their job perfectly, but they don't. And we have to keep our feet on the ground and really be aware of, of what's required to move something forward. There's a, a, a lot of teaching in the prosperity material success world that I, I really feel, I, the only way, word I can think of is I think it's wrong. And it, it misleads people. I mean, somebody recently was wanting to do a certain um, serviceful thing and they presented it to me as like they were being mentored by someone else. I was quite peripheral to the project. Well, and I started asking what to me were like the most practical feet on the ground kind of questions. 
And all that, that uh, this person had been instructed was to get a clear idea of what their goal was. And the goal was to you know, have this much money and this many people. And then we were going to somehow work a little bit backwards from that. Now, yes, it's true. But the goal didn't have any practical steps in between it. The goal was just a goal that sounded good. It didn't start from, this is who I am, this is what my experience is, this is what my capabilities are, this is what the truth of my own nature is, so let me build a goal, maybe I'll have a goal, but let me build it from where I'm standing, instead of building it sort of from out there in the ether and then sort of trying to find some tendrils in which it will connect to where I actually am. I'm not saying we can't be ambitious, I'm not saying we can't have really expansive ideas of what we want to do, but they have to have some string. And sometimes when we talk like this, uh, people will think, well, you, you know, you don't have ima- enough imagination. If we do it, it'll be magnetized. I don't think so. You know, I think it'll be magnetized if we can see, and I've talked about this in other lessons, if we can see all the steps between where we stand and where that goal is, even if they're enormous, but nonetheless, if we can see how we're going to walk that distance, and if the path is also part of the goal, it has to be there. And um, we must understand that it is not a betrayal of our, our ideals to be really practical about them. That's how Master accomplishes. That's how Swamiji accomplishes. By um, understanding the true nature of positive thinking, which is not merely wishful thinking, and that things, that things do not magnetize themselves. I think that's what I want to mean. Sometimes people say, oh, well, we'll just put $5 in there or $500 and then it'll magnetize more. No, actually it won't. It'll just sit there. It's an inert thing. If, if we are committed to magnetizing the rest of it, it will magnetize it. But just putting it there will not magnetize it. Money has no consciousness. It's just paper. You, could, you might as well just, you know put a roll of paper towels in there. I mean, it's just about as much magnetism. There's nothing there unless we ourselves have, have put that energy together. Then great things can be done. Then infinite things can be done. It's an intuition you develop. That's the only thing I can say. Okay. So, any thoughts or comments about any of that before we go forward? I don't stop often enough and ask you, not that you're loaded with questions, but I felt that I should. So, let me go on a little bit here with this. Now, what Swami talks about, which is so interesting, is... um, Oh, I know that... Just let me say a couple more things about this practical and your idealism. I started to touch on it. You know, all of... Every project in the world unless you're Einstein and you're just sitting there talking about the nature of the universe. But even then it matters. It all comes down to a matter of people. Everything is about people. Because even Einstein's fabulous revelation, which he had in just a split second, he spent 10 years writing it down in such a way so that somebody else could understand it. And as Swamiji has often commented, only about 10 people in the world did understand it, but they were the right 10 people. that at some point it wasn't enough for him to know what it was if it was ever going to move in the power of the Spirit. If, if Einstein was going to do with that revelation what God had given him to do with it, he had to also be able to communicate it in such a way that others would receive it. I think the most important thing we have to understand is talking is not communication. Communication has to be some kind of a two-way reality. And so often... In conversation, individuals are so concerned about what they have to say that we're not paying enough attention as to whether or not there's anybody on the other end of it. You know, as a public speaker, I live with this a lot because there's a kind of um, connection that is formed with people I'm talking to, and I'm extremely sensitive to when that connection is broken. And I don't just mean when people are have come after a long day's work and they're, they're, they can't really stay awake, which is one thing that happens. That's very forgivable. And it's not even a question of whether you all are active or not. It's a question of whether or not the magnetism is connected. And the way it is for me is like, I feel like I'm talking down a hollow tube. You know, if somehow or another we've lost one another, I feel like I'm talking from farther and farther and farther away. Even though we're all just standing here and the sound of my voice might be just the same, 
But it's just me spinning the words and there's no magnetic connection. For me, just from my own experience, that happens when I start repeating, I start saying things that I already know in the ways that I've said them before. And I don't mean like I've told you this story before because it might be an apt story for the moment. But when I'm talking from memory, that's what I call it. You know how many people talk from memory? Well, as I always say, well, in a situation like this, what I think is, this is the way I've always handled this. And it's just a question of what I already know, and now there's a little opening, and so I'm going to slide in what I already know. In uh, uh, the way Swamiji has taught us to speak, trained us to speak, and he himself talks about it, it has to be a balance between what we have, what, what the individual such as myself has to offer and the part of whatever I have to offer that's actually inspiring to me, and what whoever is on the receiving end of it is asking for. Very often, you know, on, in Sunday services, people will come up afterwards and, you know, jokingly often say, well, that was a great sermon for me, but I really felt sorry for everybody else in the room because it was all just about what I'd been thinking. But, of course, many different people will say that. To me, it's like, well, where else would I get my ideas? You know, I don't have any, I don't walk out with my own agenda. I don't walk out to say, oh, let me tell you all about my ideas. I may have my ideas, but it's often I'll come on Sundays and on the way in, I'll say to David, I have a really good sermon if he lets me deliver it. That's how I put it. You know, if God lets me say this, I think this would be really interesting. Let's see if he thinks it's interesting or apropos or in any way related to the people in the room. Because... You know, college professors can talk like that. And when you're trying to cover a certain material for a test, you have to make sure you cover all that material. But when the idea is merely to communicate and above all to share magnetic vibrations, because above all things it's those magnetic vibrations that really are the essence of what communication is. When Swamiji trains us as speakers... The thing he says above all is give them your vibrations. That's what Master said to him. Give them your vibrations. And I've been very conscious. I've shared this thought with you before, but I'll say it again. Um, once, once particularly, Swamiji was speaking here. He was speaking with a tremendous amount of energy, uh, talking a little more quickly than he usually talks these days. These days he's often more measured, but he was talking very extremely powerfully. You know, when he comes to any of the colonies, he doesn't come often. When he speaks in, in this sanctuary, it's, I always feel like he knows that he has only a certain number of times he's going to be able to speak to this audience, and there's a, a kind of dynamic urgency about what he offers. This is the moment he's going to give as much as he can, and it was one of those days when it was really flowing out of him, and I was so conscious of the fact that this enormous something was coming out of him, and then way after that, he put words on it. You know, that that words were like the last thing that was coming out, but we didn't know how to receive it unless it came to us in words. He could have sat in silence, but probably our minds would have wandered. And they were beautiful concepts, and he was saying them wonderfully, but it really didn't make any difference because it was the vibrations that we were receiving. So the communication was really happening because of his sensitive attunement to our consciousness. You know, he's a, a master at this, so he's an ideal example But in the example of the anxious mother trying to get the wandering child, wandering adolescent, to behave, the primary vibration that that mother is putting out at that moment is, you have scared me to death, I can hardly stand it, you must change or else I'm going to die. And the child is having a don't bother me mother moment in its life, and the communication is zero. Totally zero. It, I, I remember, and I was not a, a bad child in any way, except briefly, for a brief period of time. My mother thought it was because I was under the influence of bad companions. Um, that was a nice thought on her part, but it wasn't. But anyway, there was a little period when I was. Mostly we got along quite fine. But when I was 18, 19 years old, I was talking to a group about this the other night. Um, you know, I realized that my father especially was depending on me too much for his happiness, and I did not feel it was my destiny to provide that happiness for him. In fact, it was time very strongly in my life I just needed to cut that tie. 
but I so vividly remember the magnetism that he was putting out toward me and the, the fact that there was no way in the world I was going to accept that. And the reason I say that is because when parents talk to me about how their children just slam them shut like that, even though the circumstances in which I did that to my father were a little bit different, it was still, I was so conscious of the fact that this is really about you, and I really cannot take this in. Fortunately, I wasn't on a self-destructive course, but it was just, I cannot take this in. You're not going to ever reach me like this. The more you talk to me like this, the more I'm going to push you away. And that's hard. It's very hard, because in our consciousness, we have this idea that things have to be settled in a certain way. And this is part of what this whole lesson is about, is because Swami takes all of this into this idea of always we have to be solution-oriented. We can't allow ourselves to become obsessed with what the problem is. We have to keep our consciousness focused on the fact that every, every problem has a solution. We keep our feet on the ground and we just keep going toward that. And he uses the example in here about the necessity to be just really realistic about what's going on, even realistic about the fact that things are failing. Um, and how the acceptance of failure can change our magnetism from problem orientation to solution orientation. He uses the, the, the one example in his life. It's interesting to me, too, because from the time he was... Well, from the day he met Master, really, from the time he read Autobiography of a Yogi, with this one exception, Swamiji never, ever tried to earn a living in any way that wasn't directly related to the teachings. And even... This one example, working for the Peace Corps, was tangentially related. I mean, even when he was thrown out of SRF at the age of 36 and didn't have a penny, he never went back to just trying to earn a living. When he had to support himself, he wrote books, he wrote music, he gave concerts, he gave lectures. Every single thing he did, even in a mundane way, was informed by the the first decision he'd made, which is, I am Master's disciple, I serve his work. Nothing. Nothing else. He never turned back from that point, which is another aspect of success. Now, that was appropriate for him. It's important not to misunderstand. You know, sometimes someone says, oh, that's what so-and-so did, so that's what I must do. But that's not in tune with other aspects of this lesson where he says, you have to sit and ask, what is God asking of me? You know, what do I really have to give? I recall... uh, and a satsang Swami gave once in which we had asked him to speak about the difference between the sevaka and the sadhaka order. The sevaka order being the monastic order, the sadhaka order being more the um, group of people whose karmic responsibilities um, precluded the kind of wholehearted commitment to the work of ananda that other people had. Maybe a spouse is not involved, maybe you're raising children who aren't in tune with it, maybe you have a career path to follow, many things. And we asked Swamiji at this satsang to sort of maybe clarify that a little bit. And Swami gave this entire satsang about the absolute spirit of renunciation that has informed his life ever since he met Master, that has defined his life. And he just talked about incident after incident in which he repudiated any attachment, any identification, any sense of security. And then he talked about after he left, after he had to leave SRF and was living with his parents, and his parents, um, he, he really needed a car. And his parents wanted to give him a car. And he kept not wanting to take the car, even though he needed it. And, and he finally had to accept that they were going to give him the car and he was going to have to write his name on the pink slip and own the car. And he said it with tears in his eyes. He said, you can't imagine how painful that was for me. He said, I was a monk. I had renounced everything. And here I was going to have to own a car. I mean, you know, it's like the rest of us was like, you could hardly even think what he was talking about, but it was so difficult for him. Well, at the end of that satsang, toward the end of it, he said something like, well, you know, is there anything else I should talk about? And he turned to me, Asha, is there anything else you would like me to say? I said, maybe you could talk about the difference between the Sabic and the Sadic order. Like my head was just somewhere, I don't know. And he very seriously said, that's all I have been talking about. And then he said, Then he just looked at this group, and the group was the Sadika order. He said, don't even try to live like me. He said, you could never do it, and it's not appropriate even for you to try. 
It was very odd because then he said, you have to do what God wants you to do. You have to live at what's appropriate for you. He said, otherwise it's presumption. Very interesting. You know, and so what he does, did was, I mean, he said it was painful to own a car. So you have to stand back and ask yourself if you've ever thought twice about owning a car. Has it ever occurred to you that it was painful to own a car? In fact, you're happy to own a car. Look, this is my car. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a clue, you know, as to, as to what, what, what is the right step for each one of us. And that's another aspect of being practical in our idealism. We just have to see where we are and what we really should do. And then when we do that with our whole heart, now that all came out of this fact that in Swami's life, I I actually came up with this because when I was writing the book about him and I wrote a a chapter about money, I'm not sure whether the the section is actually called money or not, but it was a long, long section just about his relationship to money. And I made that fact and mentioned the Peace Corps. So he mentions the Peace Corps here where he took this job to help Peace Corps volunteers understand India better. And it was, I say, tangentially related to serving master's work, but not direct. And he found out very quickly that they just really didn't care about what he wanted to give them. Here he is, he's so magnetic, he's so interesting, he's so charming, he just couldn't get these students to care. And he finally had to realize this just isn't working. And, and he said, there's a certain positive energy to accepting failure. Because once you have accepted failure your feet are on the ground and you're standing right where things are actually happening. Okay, this isn't working. You know, this is a dead loss. What do we do now? And then all of a sudden you can begin to think in positive ways. And he even said, as soon as he totally accepted that it just wasn't going to work, that the plan was a bad one, and he got other people to teach the boys, as he put it, what they really wanted to know, suddenly others started coming around the back and saying, wait, wait, we miss you. We want to know what you have to teach. And then sort of on the side, he developed the little group and he was able to give them more of what he wanted. It was like the solution was magnetized out of the failure. You know, life works like that. To be realistic, and this is where Swami also talks, to be realistic is not to be negative. That's such a, just such a delicate point that it's so hard for people to get. If you say things that sound like, maybe this is not going to work, I mean, you can be doing it out of problem obsession, where all we're thinking about is all the ways that this could go wrong and how it's going to mess up. Or we can be doing it because out of simple objective fact, this isn't going to work. And let's just say it's not going to work. And then what shall we do? Given that this is not going to work, then what shall we do? I got into terrible misunderstanding once with my own guru bhais because when we first came to this area to work um, for Ananda, um, David and me, you know, some 20 or 23 years ago, this was the uh, Sacramento Center had already started, and then the, Palo, the San, San Francisco House had been going, uh, actually for quite a few years, but the model that we ended up using here of buying an apartment complex and eventually getting a church and all of that, it was a, it was a new era for um, branch communities, branch from Ananda Village. At that point, the word Ananda meant village. And there was no other Ananda. In fact, we had to train people once we got started here to say Ananda village instead of just saying Ananda because people here would say Ananda and it meant the same thing to them. But um, when we started, it was very difficult to get people to relate past, essentially past David and me because they didn't know anything. You know, some people had come from Ananda village but many people were just walking in off the street And they just saw this little thing going on and they were talking to the two of us primarily and a few other people. And they thought that was all Ananda was. And we were talking to them about Ananda Village, Ananda Worldwide. We were talking about Swami Kriyananda and this is what, you know, this is all about. And they were basically just kind of tuning out. And then when we would come back to something that was right here in their reality, they would relate to that. Because you have to build from where you're standing. And because we were sort of doing something new, there was a lot of confusion in the bigger world about what people ought to be doing and how people in in this community ought to be behaving. They ought to be doing this, they ought to be doing that. And I completely agreed that if we were ever going to get to a place of real attunement, people's consciousness had to expand 
to embrace a lot more than it was presently embracing. I didn't disagree. But at one point, I finally said somewhat in exasperation, well, they don't embrace more than this, and that's just the way it is. And to me, that meant, so that's where we're standing. Let's build from there. Don't just keep telling me it should be different. It isn't different. But that was interpreted to mean that we never had any intention of expanding beyond that. And it was just a, a, it took a long time to unravel that. It took me a long time to figure out what had been heard from what I said. But it was never a negative statement to me. I mean, it sounded negative and that's how it was heard. It was never a closing the door statement to me. It was just, that's where we stand, feet on the ground. You know, we've invited these people to become part of Ananda and this is all they understand. So what's the solution for that? You know, that's not really a problem. That's just a fact. And, and that's what we have to work with um, in everything that we do. If these are the facts, we have to then magnetize a solution related to those facts instead of magnetizing a solution related to a dream. You know, just a, sort of a wishful dream. Oh, we'll put, we'll put the money in the bank and it'll magnetize more money. No, I don't think so. You know, we don't have any energy for this project, so let's not put the money in the bank. Let's use the money for the ener- a project we have energy for. Whatever might be true, it's not negative to say that. It's working with the flow of energy as you really feel it. Now, this is where Swami, in this lesson, um, says something so just fascinating, which he puts, he just takes this whole phrase, feet on the ground, keep your feet on the ground, and he talks a lot about what is the ground? And then he, he moves us repeatedly that that phrase came out of an age in which people traveled walking on their feet. And he said, and you had to keep your feet on the ground. There was no other way to get anywhere. You know, you, you, you didn't have automobiles. Maybe you had horses, but the horses had their feet on the ground. You didn't have automobiles. You didn't have trains. You certainly didn't have airplanes. The only way you could actually progress was to put one foot in front of the other and you had to stay in that mode or else nothing would ever happen. But now Swamiji is talking about how we're moving from Dwapara Yuga, from Kali Yuga, in which the understanding of everything was that it's fixed and that the material reality really is the the reality and that if you don't stay in touch with matter, you're nowhere. And, and that thought still really limits us a great deal. We, we don't appreciate, and that's what these lessons are really all about, we don't appreciate the fact enough that this whole world is really not physical. This world is energy and magnetism. And if it's energy and magnetism, then the forces that move this world are energy, energy and magnetism. And the material comes after that. We've talked about this in other previous lessons. But I'm just so charmed by the way Swami changes this. And so what he's trying to say is to keep your feet on the ground is really to keep your consciousness aware that energy is everything. And that in order to, to move energy, we have to have magnetism. And that magnetism has to be in harmony with what we're trying to do. Um, because if, if our energy is not in harmony with what we're trying to accomplish, it's the energy that eventually brings about the result. When I, um, in my earlier years, when I used to be a lot more high-strung than I am now, um, I would often just get so wound up that even though I could keep working, I wasn't, didn't have very good magnetism. And Swamiji, very pointedly, and I, it was a very vivid lesson for me, He said, you won't necessarily do more good by doing more, is what he said. You'll do more good by getting your magnetism in order so that your magnetism is good, and then you'll be able to do more good. Otherwise, you'll just be moving around. And the energy that you're generating not only will not bring positive result, it's even quite capable of bringing negative result, because the magnetism that you're working with is no longer the magnetism that will move energy in the direction that you're trying to move it. So he's really trying to get us to understand in our efforts to be successful, above all, the most practical thing, the most grounded thing to do is to realize that it's all about the flow of energy and to move one from fixed ideas. And the second thing is to recognize that all of our focus has to be put into that kind of energy and that's the most practical way to move. Okay, I'm going to take a little break at this point and then we'll... Go on to the next part.
Do we have any thoughts or questions about anything that we've been talking about so far? This feet on the ground uh, uh, ideas reminds me of the Niyamas, I think, a few lessons mm-hmm. back. Yes. Um, I think it was the second one. I, uh-huh. The one time I remember it where um, Kriyananda said to accept whatever is accept there. Accept whatever is, as, right. As, no, that's exactly is. right. Yeah. Um, Thank you for drawing those two together because that's exactly right. The Yamas and the Niyamas, one of them is... Um, to tell the truth, to not tell lies. And to not tell lies is to see what actually is. It's vitally important. You know, it's, um, I was reflecting on this. Let me just try to think this out for a minute. You have to not tell lies. And part of the capacity to be successful... Um, well, I was trying to tie it with two thoughts. In, in the Education for Life system, for, for our, our educating children... We, t- we describe, Swami describes, the goal of true education is, is true maturity. And he describes true maturity as the ability to relate to realities other than one's own. It's a, a fascinating phrase because, you know, a master can relate to all realities because all realities are his own. And, and, and for the human being, we tend to get lost in whatever realities are ours and we can't really fully cognize how differently some other person can see a situation. It's really fun living in community. There's so many reasons why sangha is so beneficial for the spiritual path. But one of them is the fact that you, you have so many different friends and those friends don't always agree with each other. And if you have lots of friends, they'll often talk to you about the same situations. And so someone will tell you about a whole situation, not necessarily in a gossipy or a complainy way, but sometimes it's a problem situation. They'll describe the whole thing from their point of view. And there's this whole reality behind it. And then this other person will tell the whole story from their whole point of view, and it's completely consistent reality, and they might as well be on different planets. You can tell that they're talking about the same situation. There's enough similarity, and nobody is wrong. It's just that each person is moving forward from wherever they are, but the, they don't exactly mesh. And I've said many times, the, the genius of Swami Kriyananda as a leader, and as a saint too, is the fact that he can just accept each of those realities so completely, help each individual person move forward, even though the people can be on opposite sides of the question, he can help everybody move forward and, and feel that he supports all of them even though on, if you looked at it in, a, in, a, in terms of fixed matter, it's impossible. But if you look at it in terms of energy, where all energy is moving toward a harmonious conclusion, he's just moving everybody toward a harmonious conclusion because everything resolves in harmony sooner or later. But part of that too I was sort of thinking about is, you know, we, we have to be able to also just be very impartial about ourselves. We have to not tell lies. This is just what, when you're putting it that way, made me think of it. We have to stop telling untruth. And sort of one of the ways we stop telling untruth is to be able to just see situations for what they are, but have the faith that there's still a solution. A lot of the times we're not, the reason we're not willing to just see it like it is is because we're really, that looks like a problem to us. It doesn't look like, to us like a solution. But, but truth always leads to a solution. The more sort of open and real we can be about things. Now, that's not complaining. That's not criticizing. That's just... And, and so much of it is about our inner attitude. That's what Swami talks about repeatedly. If we can keep our inner attitude magnetic and hopeful and positive and loving, all the yamas and the niyamas, since you brought them up, all of those dynamic attitudes inside then we can really sort of deal with anything because those dynamic attitudes have solution magnetism. But when our, our, our inner consciousness becomes, this is terrible, this is frightening, these people are impossible, um, my son's condition is hopeless, nothing is ever going to resolve, as soon as we have that, we're moving in a vortex in which problems attract more problems and we become self-fulfilling. I, I uh, had a friend once who had some horrible legal problem. He'd been, he'd, somebody had um, a, a, 
asserted it was actually a divorce issue and the ex-wife had uh, forged his name on the papers and said that he'd actually been served and he hadn't actually been served and so a judgment was rendered against him and all this money was owed and by the time he got there you know it was $96,000 and nothing could be done about it and it was money he'd actually paid but of course he didn't have any receipts because his house had burned down okay so I was talking to a lawyer trying to help him, and, and so we were talking, and I was just explaining the whole legal mess and this and this. He said, well, okay, have him come to my office and have him bring his bank records. I said, oh, of course he doesn't have them because his house burned down. And the lawyer said, it would, it would. Just like that. <laughs> like, of course his house burned down, because once you're in a cycle like that, your house will burn down. That's just the way it is once you get going like that. But just the way he accepted it is so natural to the whole situation. He's a defense attorney, he knows. But I was, I was watching actually in a car and just today and I drove by this, um, it was sort of a busy street and this man who looked like he was a little down on his luck and he had a, an older car and he'd obviously gotten a flat tire and he didn't have the right tools and he was crouched there on the edge of the highway and I just thought to myself, of course he would get a flat tire. You know, that just the, the energy was spiraling, and so the next thing that would happen would be a flat tire. I mean, isn't that so in our own lives, and haven't we seen that so often? The Bible puts it in a horrible way. The Bible says, to those who have, more shall be given, and to those who have not, even the little they have shall be taken away. Doesn't it just sound, yeah, you read that and you think, what kind of a God is this? I think I'll convert to Judaism. I really don't want to follow this. You know, this is terrible. But he was just talking about the karmic law. He wasn't really talking about wealth. He was talking about consciousness. To those who have a sense of impoverishment and a sense that the world is denying me and a sense that everything is difficult and impossible, what we attract is more of the same. And it isn't really the obstacles that cause that to happen. It's the attitude that we develop when faced with those obstacles. And this business about being problem-oriented or solution-oriented is such an, an utterly profound and essential concept for success in everything that we do. To merely have a situation, to merely acknowledge a situation, is not to be problem-oriented. And that, that's, again, where people say, well, don't talk about that, don't talk about problems, you know. Well, if you've got one, you have to deal with it. But you deal with it from the attitude of, well, let's find the answer. Okay, this is, these are the facts, let's find the answer. I often say it's like if you have one of your legs amputated and you only have one leg, you have to at some point acknowledge that you only have one leg. You really can't just keep bounding out of bed every morning with the affirmation that I can walk because you only have one leg. You have to then find how to get another leg so that you can walk. But that's just, this is what we're dealing with right now. And it doesn't really matter how many things fall apart. We'll just keep dealing with it. Remember that story in the much earlier lesson about the man who'd been prospecting out, the true story, prospecting out. He struck gold. He converted his gold into paper money. He hid the gold, hid the paper money in the stove because they had, were so poor they didn't have any fuel. And then, what, his wife came home or one of his buddies, and then they, they thought, well, we're rich now, so we'll start a fire. And they burned up all the money. And he just said, well, I'll just go out and find more gold. And darned if he didn't go out the next day and do that. It was like, well, this is a situation. But I found it once, I'll find it twice, and he did. And he went out and he found gold. I mean, it's, it's, it's a historical fact. Because that was the orientation he had. Well, I didn't get that job, I'll just try to get another one. I'm just, you know, I'm in the process of looking for a job. We're going to find a job. Master said I would shake heaven and earth until it gave me a job. But it's really much more in how we expect life to, to, to relate to us. Now bear in mind, karma is karma. Sometimes the house will burn down. And then after that the car will break. And then somebody in your family will die. And then the investment will turn sour. I mean, we do get into these streaks where... I sort of say if somebody could read your horoscope, it'd be a big skull and crossbones. You know, there's just nothing in it except death and destruction. But it isn't death and destruction if we keep that inner attitude. And Swami emphasizes in this chapter that it's the nature of this world to go up and down. 
um, uh, I was hearing on the radio this, you know, this whole investigation of Goldman Sachs, and I saw a snippet of it on television. Here are these guys, you know, who a few years ago were so rich and so... And, I mean, they're just ordinary guys, and I can't help but just feel sorry for them. They've got families, they've got kids, and they've got mothers, and all of a sudden they're sitting in front of the Senate Investigation Committee being, you know, somebody's trying to find a scapegoat, and I think they... The, apparently they behave despicably and they're trying desperately to cover themselves. But you know, they were up and now they're down. And they'll be down and then they're up. My, I happen to be personally acquainted with Bud, uh, Bud Krogh is his name. And he was uh, 29 years old and he was in the Nixon White House. And he was in the middle of all of that Watergate stuff. And he was totally, he ended up actually going to prison over it. At a certain point, he was fighting, 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 fighting not to go to jail. And then just one day he realized, I did a really wrong thing. I need to go to jail. (laughs) And he just turned around and went to jail. And, you know, it just was the end of everything. Here he was, this big, you know, prodigy. He was part of the White House. Everything was so great. And, I mean, a lot of bad things happened. He went to jail. His marriage dissolved. You know, things happened. But then he just starts up the other side again. You know, this works out, that works out, and he's, you know, gets up again. These Goldman Sachs guys, they were up, they'll be down, they'll be up, they'll be down. It just helps so much to just stand back for a minute and also think about this, you know. This is, this is just a story. I've had many incarnations. Think about how many incarnations we've had. Think about how many times we've raised kids. Think about how many times those kids went sour. <laughs> Think of how many people go sour and then get themselves together again. Think of how many times it ends tragically. But it doesn't end. It never ends. It can never end tragically. Tragedy cannot be the end of the story. The chapter can end there. It's definitely true that the chapter can end there. I mean, how many books have we read where the chapter ends there? You know, what's going to happen now? And then we just can't wait. We have to turn the page because we know that that's not the end of the story. So part of the way we stay solution-oriented is, well, you know, this is the part in which I don't see the light. But this can't be the part in which the light has disappeared. It's just so easy to allow ourselves to fall into that thinking. Ananta, who many of you know, has been my greatest mentor in this, because Ananta's response to everything is <laughs> like that, no matter how horrible, no matter how really horrible. You know, lawsuits, disasters, everything. His response to it is he first he laughs. He doesn't laugh at it. First he just laughs, and then he just goes. And uh, did I tell you that story that someone told me recently about Ananta recently? Somebody came from Ananta village who'd heard me talking about him and now knows him on her own. And she was saying about how these two young men up there were doing some uh, project on the land. And Ananta said to them repeatedly, now before you dig... You need to know where the water pipes are. Oh yeah, we know where the water pipes are. We've worked it all out. We know where the water pipes are. And so they put the shovel or the tool down. Of course, the first thing they hit was the water pipe because <laughs> they didn't know where the water pipe was. And, the, and then, you know, just this huge, there's a hole and then there's this geyser and the only thing they could think of to do was to call Ananta. So Ananta comes running. He's, you know, a, he, for those who are listening to this who don't know, he's a founding member of Ananda. He's, you know, he must be 60 at this time, maybe a little younger than that. He's been from the age of 20-something doing all of this. And, the, and uh, Ramu, who's also been at this for many decades. And the two young men are sort of delicately sort of trying to bail the water out of this hole. And Ananda's response is, wow, look at this. And then I was told he just stepped into the hole, you know, just stepped into the mud and just started wrestling with the pipe. You know, and there was nothing else to do. You can't just sort of stand there and just watch it flow. You've got to get in, get wet, get muddy, change, change the dynamic here. And true to form, you know, he didn't say, oh, you idiots, I told you to know where the pipe was. He just said, well, look at this, the pipe's busted, let's deal with it. You know, that's, that's just the way it is. It's so easy to talk about. It's so hard to do. But there's really no other solution. Because any other solution, not only are we miserable, which is really not a pleasant experience, but as soon as we're miserable, we have lost our solution magnetism. 
Because misery is based on the fact that this is hopeless and I can't solve it. Otherwise, why would we feel miserable? Yes, it can be a lot of work. When Ananda, a great deal of Ananda burned down in 1976, that summer it burned in June, it was a long summer. And we stayed cheerful, but we were really tired by September. That's sort of what I noticed. We got to September and I was sort of like, we're a lot more tired this September than we usually are in September. Why is that? And it was just like there had been all this force, you know, that had burned down a lot of houses and things were not as they were and there's just tremendous effort to get back, you know, to where we'd been before that fire came through. It was a lot of work. We were tired, but we weren't discouraged. We weren't sad. We weren't disappointed. We were just tired because it did take effort. Sometimes we don't think we have that energy. But whatever it is, we have to always keep moving our mind back to the fact that this is an energy universe and that is the reality. Nothing is fixed. It's so um, incredibly important to just keep that thought in mind. Even if we're manifesting material things, this is where Swami talks about that. The reality of everything, the reality of the material world is the energy behind it and the energy Behind that is the concept and the ideas of what we're trying to do. And all of it can be shifted by consciousness. And if the karma is hard, if there's a lot of force, it may take time. But it's inevitable because it's the energy and the consciousness that made it happen in the first place. And as long as we're working with that, then we're working with the source of everything. So Swami really says, you know... um, You have to be really focused. You can't make this world change merely by wishful thinking. You have to be one-pointed, and you have to be determined, and you have to keep trying. Swamiji um, makes a few other points here, which I'm not sure how much more I can cover, but let me just see for a minute. I love where he says here, he says, I have been trying through these lessons to help you to stimulate your subconscious toward success consciousness. He just throws this in. I've been trying through these lessons to stimulate your subconsciousness toward success consciousness. He says, and even more than that, toward even more than that, toward being solution oriented. Then he says, the very rhythm of these sentences are intended to help you toward success. How, you ask? <laughs> it's a natural question, isn't it? He said, by keeping that thought of success vibrant and alive in mind as I write. That's what he's saying to us. In other words, what he's trying to transfer to us is the consciousness that he has that has enabled him to succeed. You know, you just pick up a little pamphlet, you think, oh, these are words, and you just read it. And a lot of little pamphlets that you read are just words, and you just read it. But when a person knows what they're talking about, and is actually communicating and not just talking to themselves, they're transferring to us the consciousness that will then magnetize within us our own ideas of where we need to go and what we need to do. All of Swami's writing is so confusing in a certain sense because it's, it's seminal. It's the fundamental attitude and energy that we need in order to draw the inspiration to know what we need to do. You know, he, he, he practices what he preaches. He puts it right on that level. That's why yesterday or, yes, the day before yesterday at Sunday service, I was uh, paraphrasing a paragraph that Swamiji had written for this young reader's book that he's just finished. And he was talking about the nature of reality as bliss. He was actually contrasting reason and feeling and the nature of reality as feeling um, balanced wisdom and reason together. It was, it was just a beautiful phrase. But Swami said, it's taken me many years of right living, of living, to be able to write that paragraph. And you would think, well, many people could have written that paragraph, but that's not what he meant. It's, been, it's taken all those years for me to be able to infuse that paragraph with the consciousness of what I'm describing. Now, that's what makes Scripture, Scripture. Otherwise, it's just reading. Scripture lasts, and people say, well, how do we know the Bible is true? And you just get the mind, just gets going. Well, that's what, just reason without feeling. You know the Bible is true because when you read it, the consciousness 
of what lives in those pages comes out to you. And this is this material success course written by a person of Swami's consciousness gives us consciousness. Um, why it's also really good sometimes to get his books himself reading his own books. Because then you not only get the words and the concepts, but you actually get the vibration of his voice. And in, in, in terms of success, in terms of success in, in anything, it's very popular these days to talk about mentoring. And you know, mentoring is more than just having somebody tell you what to do. Mentoring is the idea that someone will teach you um, what is required to be successful in this field. But more than anything, what is required is to have the right consciousness. And this is, again, where Swami sort of talks about how... And I, I'm actually going to postpone this till next week because I, I want to give it greater emphasis. But you, you have to have the right concept behind what you're doing. We talked about this in earlier lessons about being crystal clear about what we're doing. You can't just put out energy. I mean, sometimes people say it's not just a question of working hard, you have to also work smart. Because sometimes people do put out a lot of energy, but they have never gotten the right concept behind that energy. So all that energy that they're putting out is never focused toward the right objective. And that's, and that's a very subtle point. That I, That's why I realize I don't want to just pass over it, because I think it's an important part of what this lesson is about. But um, let me just find... Oh, yes. And, you know, in the spiritual path, above all, that it's very hard to understand sort of what is the role of the guru, especially when, you know, it's, it's just subtle. People think that the guru tells you what to do. And we have this picture in our mind, those of us who are on this path, we've, we, we have a, an image in our mind of what Sri Yukteswar was like because of the way Master describes him as being very demanding, very exacting, very direct, didn't have many disciples, he drove people away, I mean, lots of things that make you feel this was a very forthright and stern man. And you will imagine in your mind, at least I did for a long time until I read more carefully, that he would tell you what to do. And there would even be a certain, either you would re- respond to that in two ways. One way would be to say, thank God I'm not Sri Yukteswar's disciple. Or the other would be, oh, how I'd love to have a guru who would really, you know, beat me up or whatever you would, however you would call it. Um, but then you read that chapter where Master had an affection for that boy Kumar, I think was his name. Is that, I always can remember, it's not Kashi, I think it's Kumar, but whatever his name was, I don't want to make factual errors again. Um, but it was, a young, it was a young disciple that uh, Sri Yukteswar had an infection, affection for, whose charms were lost on everyone else, as Master puts it rather, you know, delicately. But the guru was attracted to him, and as Master even says, who can fathom the ins and outs of a master's heart. But this boy um, didn't really appreciate what he had in Sri Yukteswar, and he had a desire to go back and visit his home village. And you know, it was a long journey, and he wanted to stay away for a while. And Sri Yukteswar knew it was not going to be a good idea for him. In fact, he knew it was going to be a spiritual disaster for him. But he, the boy... Um, ignored Sri Yukteswar's gentle hints. Because Sri Yukteswar was interested in communicating, not talking. And there was no point in him making a declaration if the boy did not have the consciousness to receive the guru's consciousness and understand. So So Sri Yukteswar hinted. The boy ignored the hints, went off to his village, and when he came back several months later, he'd picked up unsavory habits that made him unsuitable for ashram life. And Master was given the unfortunate task of telling him to leave because Sri Yukteswar didn't have the heart even to cast him out of the ashram. Now, all of that says that even in what we imagine to be so direct a teacher as Sri Yukteswar, still it was a matter of receptivity and it was a matter of the transfer of consciousness. It's not really a matter of just having words given to you that anybody can give you words. But you have to be, we have to be, able to receive the consciousness behind those words or we won't even understand them. And above all, what a master gives to us is he gives us his consciousness. And when we have the consciousness of what it is to be uplifted spiritually, then nobody has to give us the words. 
because our own perspective has the right concept and we then begin to know what to do. And or as soon as the consciousness is there, then the thoughts will come with it. But the words alone will not have any real effect on us. And that's why you really don't have to be with the master in person if you are in tune with his consciousness because he will guide you through that. You get the concept right and then everything else will follow from there. It's really um, absolutely fundamental to success in anything that we do is that we are in, in tune with the consciousness of what we're trying to do and then we're in tune sufficiently with ourselves to understand how our consciousness can be expressed through that. And I think that that part of the lesson is too vital to rush. So I'm just going to wait, and we'll do this lesson again. I don't know if it will take all week, so we might start 14 also, but at least we'll finish 13 before we go on. Okay? Any comments or thoughts before we close it up for the night? Okay, that's it.